We're taking the musical route, and Christmas music can be polarizing, can't it? Many people love Christmas music. Some people hate Christmas music. Maybe a few of you are those in that camp, perhaps. No one surely listens to Christmas music all year long. I mean, in May? Surely not, right? I mean, Christmas music can be polarizing. People have strong opinions about it. And our culture has naturally made it to be a seasonal thing. Its presence is very intense with us for five or six weeks. And we're all glad for that. Most of us. And then it's gone. And it's gone. And we don't see it again for another year. And many of us are relieved when it's gone. But regardless of what your opinion is, polarized or not, Christmas hymnody can be very instructive and worshipful for us. And so it's helpful for us to think about it, to sing it together, and to know what we're singing when we sing it so that we persuade our hearts of the gospel with our voices singing. Tonight, we'll take a look at Angels We Have Heard on High. It's there in your bulletin before you. It's not necessarily the text for our consideration, although it contains it. It's a hymn. It's not a Bible text itself. It is a traditional French carol. There's nothing spectacular about this one in and of itself. That traditional French carol is in the hymnal. That's all the hymnal tells us about it because that's about all there is to say about it. As far as we know, it was formed, written, and created uh, maybe 200 years ago or so in France somewhere by some anonymous writer. Not really sure who wrote it. And in 1862, it was translated into English by a Roman Catholic bishop in England And then it was popularized, as far as it is, on the porches of Americana as we gathered together to sing carols to each other. And that's how we know this hymn. It's a simple hymn. It draws you in with a story. And then it sends you out with a refrain that challenges, not just by the application that it suggests to you, but also by the translation that it requires of you. It's written in Latin. Right? If you have no idea what Latin might say to you, then you might be confused by it, but I expect you're not because it's simple enough. That refrain that is in this song is, with the exception of that language that we have it in, directly from the mouths of the angels in Scripture. Luke 2, verse 14, we read some of the context of it moments ago in our opening liturgy. Luke 2, verse 14, the angels declare, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men on whom His favor rests. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom He is pleased. Christmas is an odd time of the year. It's almost kind of an imposition of heartwarming stress on all of us. All right, it's kind of this, this ironic contrast between the heartwarming parts and the stressful parts. Everybody's experiencing some of both at Christmas time, and I always look forward to it as it comes, as 
mid-November rolls along through the calendar, I begin to look forward to the heartwarming part of Christmas, the sentimental part of it. You know, it, it feels good. But there's the stressful part of it, too. We have a Christmas tree in our living room that's standing there, dark and undecorated. It's been standing there for three days. We've been watering it, but that's all. Not because our Christmas tree fully decorated last year crashed down onto the hardwood floor, breaking half of the glass ornaments that were on it, but simply because we haven't had time. The stress of the season creates hectic schedules, and so when Christmas is past, January 1 arrives, we're all sort of relieved in some sense. There's that irony. I'm not sure why we create such stress for ourselves around the birth of the Savior, but I do know why the birth of the Savior came to pass. And it is, in a very simple word from the angels, glory. Glory to God and glory for man. A very simple reason for the Savior's birth. Here are these shepherds in the field watching their flocks by night, minding their own business, right? They're relatively unimportant characters in the day. The poor of society they were. And here they are in the field minding their own business when suddenly these angels appear, or an angel of the Lord appears to them to announce what is the next step in God's redemptive plan for the world. Announcing it to this humble little audience in a field with a flock of sheep. And having calmed their fears, the angel offers them this message. Now that idea of having calmed their fears, which Luke tells us, is kind of amusing to me. To just imagine the fears that must have been present in these simple shepherds out in the field when the angel of the Lord, of all things, appeared to them in the sky above them, surrounded by the glory of God. I can't imagine what was going through their hearts and their minds, but having calmed their fears, the angel offers them this message. He says, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And after more details, an angelic army bursts forth in the refrain, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to men on whom His favor rests. The story goes on like this. Luke tells us, when the angels went away into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. I imagine that's not the only thing they said to each other, but that's what Luke tells us. Let's go to Bethlehem. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. Glory to God in the highest. Glory to God in the highest. That is, in the heavenly places. And glory on earth in the low places for men. Glory to God and glory for men. Gloria in excelsis Deo, 
the angels would have said had they been speaking Latin. I don't think they were. They could have, I'm sure. But if they were, they would have said, Gloria in excelsis Deo, glory in excess to God, exceeding glory to God. Glory in excess. That is, after all, at root, the reason for the gospel. Glory. Glory is simply the reason for the gospel. Glory, properly understood, exceeding glory to God, is not a self-serving indulgence like we might imagine it to be. A skeptic would, maybe rightly, initially wonder and be hesitant about this notion of the shepherds glorifying God and God glorifying Himself because it sounds like the malevolent dictator indulging himself at the expense of his subjects. He's glorifying himself? I mean, we don't think well of anyone who's out for his own glory. Nobody thinks well of that. Nobody appreciates it. Nobody respects it. And usually because we're jealous for our own glory. We want what they have if they're out for their own glory. We want what glory they're gaining for themselves. That's why we don't like it. But it doesn't seem right to us somehow. But again, we misunderstand. It's not properly understood as a self-serving indulgence, but rather something else altogether. C.S. Lewis writes about it in terms of the two options that he sees for glory. Interesting, simple take on it. He says that glory, it seems, is either fame or it's luminosity. Fame being that competitive desire to show yourself to be greater than others so that others will think more highly of you than they do of anyone else. And that's a competitive desire, he says, which is wicked. It's of the devil. So surely that's not biblical glory, fame, or luminosity, brightness, like the wattage of a spotlight. But that's ridiculous, he says. That's, that can't possibly be what it is. Nobody wants to grow up to be a human light bulb. So what is glory? What is glory anyway? Fame, untainted by its worldly twists that we put on it, is actually the key to understanding, Lewis suggests to us, what this glory is. Fame is simply to be known. So in, in a sense of the, the exceeding glory of God as the hymn sings to us in its refrain, God seeks glory for himself. He seeks fame for himself because it's the best thing for his people. It's the best thing for his people for him to be known. If God is glorified, people will live. If God is known, people will have life. If evil is glorified, people will die. If evil is glorified, death will reign. In our fallen hearts, we want to glorify evil. That's our nature. That's our inclination to glorify evil. And not necessarily in the obvious and grotesque ways that we might imagine or see visually in the culture. But in the subtle, simple ways. The harboring of resentment. The withholding of grace the suggestion of guilt and the limiting of love. We take all those things and we wrap it all up in a nice, neat little package 
in our imaginations and we think that no real harm can come from it. The appeal of much Christmas music is that it creates in our imaginations, right, an imaginary world where our hearts can hide. Chestnuts roasting on an open fire. Jack Frost nipping at your nose. It'd be a whole lot more romantic if Nat King Cole were singing it to you. But even just hearing the words, right, creates an image. It creates an imaginary world for you in which there's romanticism and there's pleasantness. Hidden behind that, though, is the fact that however romantic the imaginary scene can be doesn't eliminate the harsh words that were spoken between lovers the previous day. Jack Frost nipping at your nose doesn't make cold pleasant. It's still cold. We want to live in this imaginary world. That's what Christmas music sometimes offers to us. But if evil is glorified, even in an imaginary world, souls die. If God is glorified, people live. When God seeks glory and fame for himself, exceeding glory to God, people have life. The angel's message was, Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. Glory to God in the highest. God's redemptive purpose to glorify himself, to make himself known, is by redeeming his people to himself and giving them life. Exceeding glory to God. The angels sing to us. But that exceeding glory is not just to God. It's for men. Exceeding glory to men. Fame is not just to be known. It's to be favored. It's to receive the favor, the pleasure of others around you, of some audience, as it were. The angels said, glory to God in the highest, and what? On earth, peace to men on whom His favor rests. Peace to men with whom He is pleased. The gospel brings glory to God that all should know Him, and it also offers glory for man that one should favor Him. We twist glory our desire to be favored by seeking to fulfill it through idolatry. I talk to myself sometimes. Maybe you talk to yourself. I won't ask for a show of hands. I talk to myself sometimes. It's kind of a habit when I'm alone, and sometimes somebody might overhear me. I've done it since I was a kid. I can remember one time I was in high school. My brother and I were mowing a lawn together to earn some money, and he was running the edger along the sidewalk, and I was mowing the grass with the mower, and under the drone of the machinery, I was imagining things. My mind was at work. And after things were quiet, we'd finished the job, and the machines were turned off. My brother looked at me with a smile, and he said, who were you talking to? I didn't realize my mouth was moving, but apparently it was. What he didn't know, and what I did not confess is that I was running the color commentary of the World Series game in which I hit the winning home run. It never actually happened. 
But I would have loved for it to. I would have loved for it to happen because I wanted glory. Right? I wanted favor. I wanted the throngs of sports fans packing the stadium to take pleasure in me. That's what I wanted. That's our inclination. That's what we desire. But the favor of an audience is fleeting. The favor of an audience disappears once someone else does something else. The favor of a father is not. Not an earthly father. We may do well as earthly fathers to express our favor to our children as we should. They desire it. They need it. They were made for it. But we fail at it. We fail often at it. And maybe it's regrets born of such failure that bring about that Christmas stress. You know, at the end of the year, we're running out of time. We can recognize lost opportunities and failed efforts, and we have no more chance to fix them. So we make New Year's resolutions to undo all that we did and to redo all that we didn't do in the previous year. Those lost opportunities creating stress and the, the regret that comes with it. But worldly glory, worldly fame, worldly favor is not in the gospel. There is rather the favor of a father, the favor of the one who is known because of his redemption and famous for his love for his people. It's a favor that does not end and a glory that doesn't fade. Gloria in excelsis Deo. Glory to God in the highest. Exceeding glory to God that He may be known. Exceeding glory for man. Exceeding glory for you that you may live in the gospel in God's favor. Amen. Father, we pray that you would grant to us eyes to see your gospel. We pray that you would allow us, O Lord, to recognize your glory and to ascribe it to you, to recognize the beauty of your perfection and to see how all the nations are called to know you in your fame, recognizing you alone as God. And yet, as your children, you offer glory to us, favor in the gospel favor that gives us life in Christ, and we pray that you would do that in us as we prepare for the coming, this Advent season, the coming of our Savior, recognizing that He has come and that He has given us life in Him. And these things we pray in Jesus' name and for His sake. Amen.